Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, just delighted to get the opportunity to worship with you. Um, my name is Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church, and I always think it's uh, uh, fitting and appropriate on Memorial Day weekend uh, to thank God for His servants who protect us. Uh, so if uh, you have served or are serving or maybe a, a about to serve in our uh, nation's armed forces, would you please stand? Let us uh, thank God for you. Yeah. Um. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, you are a shield around us. As uh, the mountains surround Jerusalem, so you surround your beloved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our ultimate protector. Thank you uh, that you um, have delegated uh, so many different tasks of ministry out uh, to your people. And I'm grateful uh, for these in this flock that does not belong to me, uh, but is yours, Lord Jesus, as the chief shepherd of this church family and flock. Um, thank you, Lord, for giving me the privilege of serving uh, holy ones who not only hear the word, but they put it into practice. And, uh, and my life is spurred on because of what I see in this church family. Um, Lord, thank you that you have spoken and thank you that you have recorded your word. And now, Lord, as I pray often, help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said, so that our minds will not only be informed, but our lives will be transformed. So with the psalmist, I pray, open our eyes, Lord, that we may see the wonderful things written in your word for your son's glory and the good of his people. And the church said, amen. Amen. I am now the most miserable man alive. Whether I will ever be better, I cannot tell. Abraham Lincoln spoke those words uh, when he was going through a season of discouragement. And a season of failure after failure after failure left him disheartened. And those words illustrate that even gifted, talented people can experience discouragement. You are a rare person if you do not experience discouragement. Maybe you did not get that job. Uh, maybe you had to have your dissertation or your paper reworked. And the graduation date you thought was going to happen is going to be far later. There are many different reasons why we experience discouragement. And yes, discouragement can happen serving God. And paying attention to God and loving God. We can be in the place where we believe with all of our hearts that God wants us to be, 
and yet still go through a season of discouragement. Now, typically, when people talk about dealing with discouragement, the message is, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to respond. Do this, then this, then this, then this, then perhaps your discouragement will go away. But here's what you need to do. Yet, have you ever wondered, what does God do in our season of discouragement? How does he respond? What does he have to, to say in the matter? Well, that's the question that I want us to consider as we look at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 18. And we're in a series of messages through the book of Acts. And in Acts 18, verses 1 through 17... The Apostle Paul is in a season of discouragement. And you'll find Acts 18 on page 927 of your church Bibles. Yes, even the great Apostle Paul experienced discouragement. Discouragement. Core. French. Heart. Dehartment. Paul lost his heart. And lost his courage and needs to be encouraged. Thus the question, what does Christ do to encourage Paul in this season? As we look at these verses, I want us to consider first why Paul was discouraged. What was the occasion for this season of disheartment? Maybe his reasons resonate with yours. We'll see. But then... Um, the protein of this message really deals with what Christ does, the gifts that Christ gives to Paul in his discouragement to bolster his spirit and, um, and, and give him the courage that was somehow, some way lost. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, that's in northern modern-day Turkey, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, that was the emperor of Rome at that time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, that's like the senior minister, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. So the why of Paul's discouragement finds three reasons in this passage. I'll quickly review them. It's because of where Paul was going. It's because of where Paul had been. And it's because of when all of this was taking place. First, where Paul was going. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, if you take a look at Paul's second missionary journey, remember Paul left Antioch of Syria and went to encourage the churches that he had established in his first missionary journey, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of an area called Pisidia. And then Paul uh, returned back to Antioch after the first journey. On the second journey, he revisited, encouraging these churches there in the middle of what is now modern-day Turkey. He found his way to Troas, and there in Troas, he had a vision uh, of someone in Greece calling him for help. So they set sail across the Aegean Sea, landed in Neapolis, and remember what happened in Philippi. Paul was arrested, he was flogged, he was persecuted, um, and then he was finally released, but he established a church. And then he went to Thessalonica and Berea, where he had favorable response to the gospel, but he also had persecution. So there would be two responses whenever Paul would preach. He would receive, there would be those receptive to the word and those who resisted the word. But the persecution seemed to heat up to the degree that Paul's team said, we've got to get you out of town. Your life is in danger. So that's why he went down to Athens where he spoke uh, at the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire uh, to the Areopagus and proclaimed Christ. And uh, there were some converts there. Afterwards, though, he goes 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. Now let's take a look at the next slide. That's a close-up shot, and you can see uh, that it's about a two-day walk, maybe two-and-a-half-day walk, from Athens to Corinth. Whereas Athens was the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, Corinth was much more commercial because Corinth was located on that little neck of land that connected the, the mainland of Greece to an area called Achaia. And you can see a close-up shot of that. And there you notice that Corinth is between two harbors or, or uh, two water points there. The Aegean Sea on the right side of the screen and the upper left hand, the Gulf of Corinth. Um, and they did, there was not a canal there in that area until the late 19th century. So a ship would come, say on the right side or the left side of the screen, no matter, and uh, they would have to do one of two things. Either actually haul the ship out of the water and put it on rollers and take it across that little neck called an isthmus. 
isthmus, I had to practice for that. And then uh, on the other hand, though, they would either do that or just take cargo and haul it across to the other side where the shipping and transportation would continue. But Corinth was there in the middle waiting for the seafaring personnel and prepared to satisfy all of their appetites. Corinth was a very spiritually dark uh, city. Here's another picture of uh, ancient Corinth as you would go today. And uh, you look up and there's that, that it's called an Acro-Corinth. Um, and it's the, this, this large hill. These cities were situated around these large types of hills because for defense purposes. But on the top of that particular hill, that Acro-Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite. A thousand prostitutes, a thousand temple prostitutes would descend upon Corinth uh, each night. And uh, it was just, it was just a hard, spiritually uh, a, a, a dark place. Uh, in your bulletins, you'll see Gary and Javonda Barnes, uh, Gary's one of our stateside missionaries. Gary's taken me to Nepal uh, twice now. And on the way to Nepal, we always stop in Thailand, in Bangkok, Thailand. And there is a ministry uh, that Gary has an association with called Rahab Ministries. And it's located in, in a spiritually dark section of Bangkok, uh, called uh, Pat Pong, which is the red light district. And uh, uh, junior high age prostitution goes on. It is just a cesspool of moral filth. But there in that ocean of filth is this island of light as Rahab Ministries uh, seeks to, to just to love, 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 love. Um, that said, it's just really hard on your soul to minister in a spiritually dark environment. And um, you know, my heart goes for our law enforcement uh, who are required uh, to do their job, uh, especially when there are uh, sex crimes and especially involving children, uh, you know, this law enforcement in that type of a dark environment, um, well, that can be discouraging, you see? And I think that's one reason why the Apostle Paul experienced this dehearment because of where he was going in Corinth. Um, but that's not the only reason why he was discouraged. He was discouraged not only because of where he was going, but because of where he'd been. So from the time Paul went to Greece, he was like in a war zone. In fact, he says as such in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Write this down, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, that's Greece, our bodies had no rest but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So from the moment Paul got to Macedonia, he was just in a, in a, in a combat zone, 
persecuted in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, had to go down to Athens, had to be separated from his team, and now he's in Corinth. I mean, it's just been one thing after another, fighting without, fear within. And Paul is doing the will of God. You see, just because you're doing God's will doesn't mean you won't face a season of discouragement. And we might say, well, why would a good God allow his beloved people to go through discouragement? Why would God allow that? Paul called. Uh, God called Paul into that. Why would God allow that? I appreciate that question. I believe there's a better question. And the better question is this. Can God still use us in our season of discouragement? Now, that gives us an answer here. You see, the message is not that God works through weak people who then become strong, and then out of that strength he uses them. That's not the message. The message is God works through weak people. God works through discouraged people. God works through people who, are, who experience uh, uh, dehartment. God works through those weak people who remain weak, but God still does his work. That's good news. Because God's going to be bringing his power into that situation. And that's why Paul would say, we have this treasure in jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is experiencing that. He's discouraged because of where he's going. He's discouraged where he's been. And God is still using him. And he's still discouraged. And God is still using him. And he's still discouraged. And he still uses us even in our discouragement. All right, that's reason number two. And reason number three has to do of the when, when all of this was taking place. And I believe this is of relevance to us here today. So take a look at this inscription. It's called the Gallio inscription. Why Gallio? Because if you look at verse 12, you'll see the name Gallio. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, you see the word proconsul, think governor, like governor of one of our um, American states. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, so this is an inscription uh, which dates Gallio's term as proconsul during the 12th year of the emperor Claudius, whose name is mentioned here early in 18. So historians know that Claudius was emperor starting in A.D. 41. And that inscription, which is found on a tablet, in which Claudius uh, uh, is actually writing a letter to Gallio, and it says in the tablet, uh, the 12th year of his reign. Well, 12 plus 41, do the math. So it's right around 52, 53 A.D. that this event is taking place. 
So it's a historical marker in terms of when the second missionary journey occurred. You say, what does that have to do with the when of all this? Here's what it has to do with the when of all of this. Paul is about in the middle of his career as a missionary, as an apostle. Paul is about, in fact, in the middle of his second missionary journey. And why would that be a source of discouragement? Think. David Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a church in um, England post-World War II. And um, before he became a pastor, though, he was a physician. So he brings not only theology to the pulpit, but he also brings his medical practice. And David Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a wonderful book I'd recommend called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, David Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about, here it is, the danger of the middle period. Because isn't that when discouragement strikes? Those of you who participated in the Illinois Marathon, you didn't get discouraged at the starting line. And everybody's there and you're just ready to go. And this is so cool and this wonderful, you know. Yeah, right now. And then you get to mile 15, 16, 17, 18, when is this? Is this what I signed up for? See, the middle period. Why do you think they call it midlife crisis? Okay. Uh, the middle period is always the, the difficult time. The middle of your career, the middle of your, your academic uh, uh, journey, the middle, the middle, man, it's tough. And, and the temptation is to think, is this as good as it's going to get? Is this as good as it's going to get? The middle period, see. Yeah. What's ahead of you, what you just went through, and this season of life where you just kind of feel stuck. God, I need help. Jesus, what are you, what are you going to do? Well, this is where we get to the protein of the passage. Because Regardless of where you're about to be or are or where you've been or when all this happens, Jesus shows up and he gives three wonderful gifts. Gifts that meet us in our time of disheartment, discouragement. And here's what the gifts are, all right? Three reasons why we get discouraged and three gifts that Jesus gives in the middle of our discouragement. Here they are. Friends. A word and protection. Let's go through each of these. First, he gives friends. That's in verse 2. And Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So that was around A.D. 49, which was another historical marker telling us when Acts 18 occurred. But Paul found Aquila and Priscilla. He found them. Now, it doesn't say that he was looking for them in order to find them. But it says he found them. He found them. Where, where would he go to find them? Well, he's Hebrew. They're Hebrew. Perhaps the synagogue. Paul comes in. This, this synagogue he's never been to before. And, you know, he sits... He sits right there. 
Well, not right there because he's a first-time visitor. So he sits back a little further, okay, right? Oh, wait a minute. He's an apostle, so he may be a little bit further up. I don't know. But he, but he sits down and he meets a, this couple. And they nod. And he nods. And they greet one another. And, is your first time here? Yeah, my first time here. This is nice, Paul says. And I said, do, do you know the teacher? Priscilla and said, yeah. I said, is he any good? He's a little long-winded, but we love him, you know. Okay, uh, you know, I'm Paul, I'm Aquila, I'm Priscilla. Then Aquila looks at Paul's hands. He says, how long have you been a tent maker? A tent maker can spot another tent maker. Paul says, my father taught me. Well, do you have a place to work? Well, no, I'm just new in town. We have a station in our shop. Why don't you come and join us? We, we have more than enough work. I mean, we're hardly able to keep up. Will you join? Well, I, yeah. I said, well, where are you staying right now? Well, I, I just kind of got in. And Priscilla says, you're staying with us. That's where you're staying now. So, I mean, he meets this couple. And they become this wonderful ministry couple. Spiritually healthy, mature, loving caring. They were a gift from Christ to Paul. And uh, they served together. And, and then on top of this, look at verse 5. Silas and Timothy then arrive along with Luke. So Luke, Silas, Timothy, Priscilla, Aquila. You know, Paul's now no longer by himself as he was in Athens or or as he was when he first came into Corinth, and God is just providing. And in fact, what we find out is that uh, Silas and Timothy brought a love gift, a financial gift, a generous gift from the church at Philippi so that Paul uh, could devote his full time preaching Christ. And that's why it says that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, and there was fruit to the labor, and um, Paul preached at that synagogue, and then he got kicked out of that synagogue, and look, he started a church next door at the house of a man who was a worshiper of God, Titius Justice. Verse 7, and look, Paul was so persuasive that the senior minister of the synagogue, Crispus, was converted to Christ. And he joined the believers there next door at the house. Uh, Crispus and his entire household. And verse 8 says, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So, so Paul's a cloud of discouragement seems to be lifting as God sent him the gifts of friends, fellow companions, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy, uh, and Luke. Um, and I still think he gives that gift to us. Now, I want to really drill deeply here for the next four minutes about this point. Um, Gordon MacDonald is an author and a pastor's pastor, and he's about 80 now, and he's kind of a sage, 
among pastors. He's written so many books on discipleship over the years. And one book that I want to reference here is a book called Restoring Your Spiritual Passion. Restoring Your Spiritual Passion. And in that book, Gordon MacDonald talks about um, five different types of people that um, we're going to run into um, in life. And here they are. Very resourceful people. The very resourceful people ignite our passion. They ignite our passion for Christ. Uh, when you're around very resourceful people, your batteries get charged and you want to, to serve Christ more and more and more. Very resourceful people. Then there are very important people. They share your passion for Christ. And that would be like how Priscilla and Aquila was with the Apostle Paul. There was operational unity. They were on the same page. They sharpened one another as iron sharpens iron. So uh, one brother or sister sharpens another brother or sister. That's what's going on here with very important people. Very important people, they share our spiritual passion. Ignite, uh, ignite our spiritual passion. Share our spiritual passion. Then there are very trainable people. That would be like young Timothy. Paul to Timothy. And when you have a Timothy that just is hungry and wants to learn, uh, then that can really charge up the heart of the teacher. Uh, 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 so very trainable people, they, they catch our spiritual passion. And then there are very nice people. Very nice people. They enjoy our spiritual passion. So they sit and they watch and they're kind of entertained by it. They're not really going to buy into it, but they enjoy watching you be excited about Christ. All right? And they're very nice. And then the fifth type, bless their hearts. They're very draining people. They sap our spiritual passion. Or as Gordon MacDonald puts it, they're cornflakes that sit in the bowl and sop up the milk. Okay. Now, the point of these people types is this. If you're feeling discouraged, who have you been spending time with predominantly over the last six to eight weeks, okay? Is it, chances are, if it's, you know, if it's very draining people, I mean, you have only so much capacity. Now, and by the way, the point is not avoid very draining people like the plague, okay? I, I wouldn't have, nobody would talk to me if that were the case. Because I know how to be draining, ask my wife. No, don't. Uh, I know. I know how to be draining. I mean, I can be all of these types, all right? The point is, if you are experiencing a season of discouragement, ask yourself, who have I been spent? Because you, you really need all people type. You really do. There are seasons when you do need to spend time with very resourceful people. But you can't spend all of your life with very resourceful people because you need to share the passion. You see? So ask yourself that question. And then let me just even go further to say, 
How can I become a very resourceful person? Because you can be a very resourceful person to someone. So wherever you are, the prayer is, Lord, how can you pour into me that I can be a blessing to others? See? And be, how can, can I, God, I would like to be the gift that you would like to give to someone. See? Wow, that's a great prayer. See? And Paul was the recipient of that prayer and enjoyed that as God gave him the gifts of, of, of very resourceful, very important, very trainable people. That's gift number one. The second gift that Christ gave Paul was the gift of an, an encouraging word. So what happened was when the team came and Paul was uh, ignited and he was preaching, he knows what's going to happen. He is going to preach Christ and he's going to get a favorable response. And yes, that's what happened. As many believed and were baptized. Uh, but then Paul knows on the heels of that, he's going to get persecuted. And he, so Paul is like this star quarterback who throws completed passes with, with every throw. But the minute the ball leaves his hand, he gets speared by the linebacker. He makes a completed pass every time he throws, but every time it leaves his hand, he gets speared by the linebacker. And so, you know, after a while, you start listening for footsteps, right? And Paul gets down, and, and the Lord has a word with him in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Pretty, pretty terse, wasn't it? Pretty to the point. Now all of us here, I suppose, would want to be in a place where Jesus would appear to us in a vision. I think out of his mercy he doesn't do that to me because it would scare me to death. Right? But just so you know, every word that Jesus speaks in this vision to Paul, he's already said in his, in his written word. There's no new information here. See? No new information. And um, I'll go back to something David Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He quotes the psalmist, right? Why, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. And his point is that there is one person who is the most influential person in your life. You know where I'm going with this because you've heard this before. It's still true. You are the most influential person in your life because you talk to yourself all day long. You've been talking to yourself since this morning. You may be talking to yourself right now. I'm talking to myself right now at the same time as I'm talking to you. I get it, all right? Now, the question then is, you know, Lloyd-Jones says, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Well, what is my message? Don't preach your message to yourself. Preach Christ's message to yourself. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. You tell that inner man or that inner woman who God is, what God has done, what God has done for you, what God has done to place you in his family, and you defy that inner person, and you defy Satan, and you end that message with praise and glory to God. Preach to yourself. 
That's what's going on in these verses here. So Paul just needs to continue to preach to himself. Not to be afraid. Go on speaking. Christ is with us. That makes all the difference. No one will attack me to harm me. Many people are in this spiritually dark city, in this dark. Christ does not take Paul out of the spiritual darkness. Rather, he gives him light in the midst of the darkness. That's how God works. And as a result, Paul was able to stay a year and a half in Corinth. He had not stayed this long in any particular city up to this point. And ministry is happening. And this is where Christ gives him yet this third gift. And this third gift is the most unexpected gift. After 18 months of flourishing ministry, the religious enemies have had it. So they apprehend Paul, drag him before Gallio, Gallio inscription, proconsul, governor of the area, grab him, apprehend him, put him before Gallio, and they start complaining. And he is uh, uh, persuading people to worship God contrary to our law, verse 12. And, and Paul knew what was going to come. You know, he, he, he's hearing their accusations and he's going to get a chance. And then who knows what the government's going to say to this. And just before Paul was getting ready to open his mouth, the scripture says, verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio cut him off. Stop. I'll deal with this. And he looks at the religious enemies. Do I look Jewish? Do I look Jewish? Do you think I care about your Jewish matters? If this man were accused of some vicious crime, and you're trying to tell me that this theological dispute that you have, which, by the way, you're in Corinth because my boss kicked you out of his capital, so you came here like I really want that. Now it's my problem. Do I look Jewish? Do you think I care? If he was convicted of some vicious crime, I might listen to the matter. But this is a theological discussion between you people, and I don't want to deal with it. You are keeping me from my afternoon in the Roman spa. Get out of here! Nah, that's right. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Verse 15. And he drove them from the tribunal. Whoa. Paul didn't even have to open his mouth. Jesus provided protection. And here's how he did it. He used an unbeliever to protect Paul from other unbelievers. Brilliant. Brilliant. And oh, they were so mad. They needed a scapegoat. So they picked on the new senior minister at the synagogue, Sosthenes. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't a pastor of that church. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. But look, look. But Gallio paid no attention to this. <laughs> Could not care less, all right? Just make sure you clean up the blood as he's off to the Roman spa. That's Gallio, my goodness. But once again, Christ provided protection. He didn't say, no one will attack you. He said, no one will attack you to harm you. And Jesus kept that promise. Wow. And it was a flourishing ministry there 
in the city of Corinth while Paul was there because God had given his heart that the, the heart of friends who loved him and built him. He gave him the encouraging word. I'm with you. Speak. And then he gave him protection from the most unlikely sources. Uh, that's just like Jesus. Jesus, who himself needed companions there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asked the disciples to pray with them, watch and pray. Jesus, who himself needed an encouraging word. And Luke 22 says that the angel, the, and there in the garden, the angel strengthened him. And Jesus, uh, whose title was protected by an unlikely source, Pontius Pilate, because when the religious enemies of Christ saw the sign above his head, it was a sign that said, um, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The religious enemies said, we don't want that up there. The sign we want is this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pontius Pilate said, do I look Jewish? What I have written, I have written. Jesus encourages the heart. And that encouragement comes from the most unlikely places. And let me tell you just one more place, and then I'll pray. I've got a picture I want to show you. You're going to like this. So the guy to the right is Braun Strowman. Okay, he's a professional wrestler. He, he, he doesn't play for the PGA. He's a professional wrestler. And uh, I guess a couple months ago, there was WrestleMania 34. And he was going to contend for the World Heavyweight Tag Team title. He was going to wrestle against a two-man tag team. And the team was called The Bar. So Braun comes out there in the ring. But he's all by himself. And the audience is wondering... Well, who's going to be with him? Who's going to wrestle with him? And Braun takes the microphone and says in front of the entire crowd, I'm going to select someone from the audience to be my partner. And everybody goes crazy. So Braun Strowman gets out of the ring, goes across the barrier, goes up into the, the crowd, and plucks out 10-year-old Nicholas. Brings Nicholas into the ring. He says to Nicholas, you go stand over there by that apron. Just watch. So at the sound of the bell, Braun Strowman makes pancake mix out of the bar. Takes the belt, heaves it up over his head along with Nicholas, raises his hand. This 10-year-old is now the world tag team champion with Braun. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Huh? We are Nicholas. We are Nicholas. Praise the Lord, we are Nicholas. Because our king lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we couldn't die. And Paul says in Corinthians, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory 
in Jesus Christ. And that's why, church family, in your discouragement, there's, there's no discouragement too deep that an empty tomb can't fix. And that's why, that's why, that's why we sing, so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Church family, listen to me. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Christ, our victorious King, is with us. There are many people in the city. We've won. Amen.